0: Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity. Both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood, so little by little I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today, I'm going to be doing something a little different and responding to an audience member question about how I learned I could write books and what process that took on. Hello and welcome to the show. How are you doing? My name is Ben Talon. This is The Creative Condition. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you're well. I hope your week is going good. Big thank you to everybody who has kindly supported the Kickstarter campaign for The Creative Condition book it is entering its critical phase. We have... 20 days left as we speak, and I am into about 85% funded, so I would love it if you would consider a pledge, and what that means is that by pledging, you get your copy secured of The Creative Condition ahead of its production and publication in March 2024. All backers will probably get their copy about late February, mid to late February, when I've got them printed, packaged them up, and sent them out, but the book is written, the book is edited, it's getting in at nearly 400 pages, it's a bit of a whopper, it's a big exploration of human creativity, and I think it's going to help a lot of people, this is a real project of passion, so go and check that out, follow my social media, you'll find it practically everywhere at the moment, and head to the Kickstarter and choose your reward, we've got some lovely foiled prints by Foilco. There are copies of champagne and wax crayons, my first book about the creative industry, and that is in a bundle deal with the creative condition. You can get ebook bundles. You can get ebook individuals. You can get 3d printed skulls. There's one of one of the set of four left of those. There's an original A1 painting. If you're feeling a bit more flush and you fancy something scarce. So go and have a look. It's been, oh, it's been arduous. I'm not going to lie. First couple of weeks, house on fire, it was. The thing I was on, I was shouting and talking to everyone and it was great. And I had all those close mates and family and peers and then acquaintances and then people I haven't spoken to for 10 years. <laughs> and then it just becomes this thing where you're like, oh my God, how many more ways can I say this? How? how who else am I going to reach out to? But what's been really lovely is, hasn't just been people I've been reaching out to. It's had support from people in the States, worldwide, from... People I've never heard of that just love that cause of creativity and that means the world because it's something I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life trying to help people to understand and embrace their creativity for the greater good of us all. So if that's something you can get on board with please do go and have a look. But what I wanted to do today before we get too deep in, just a quick thank you to the supporter of the show, founding sponsor Illustration X. They've been here making this possible for seven years now, since day one. They even helped suggest the idea of a podcast to me. So that means a lot too. Going to have a look at their global range of illustration and animation portfolios now, got a bit of everything, whatever you need, illustrationx.com. Um, but I was doing a Adobe live interview last week with um, Clady and Elise Swopes. um Clady Virgin and Elise swaps who run a new show called The Creative Connection, or just, just Creative Connection, I think it might be. And they invited me on the show as their first guest, which is very kind, big honour, that was lovely. Um, I love Claddy to bits. Claddy uh, is a friend of mine from a shared studio in Manchester that was M1 at the time in an old cotton mill, and we were bumping into each other and we had mutual friends, and um, she was just full of energy. Fantastic person working with Adobe at the moment, so look her up. Uh, I-, I am Claddy on Instagram. Anyway, we did this big interview, and um, what happened was Claddy uh, fielded interview questions to you know let the audience ask the questions and one of the questions that she chose for the five minutes i had to answer it was how did i realize i could write you know i'm an illustrator i'm a visual artist how did i realize i could write to the point where i've got books out and it's one of those eternal questions isn't it i think we all feel like we've got a book we've got a project in us and writing is, is something that's available to every one of us we are all creative that's the point of this book that's why i've chosen to hand letter the creative type on my file code prints because i believe that every one of us is creative so it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek you know whoever gets the print they are creative end of Um but when it comes to writing it's very confusing and i think maybe more than most professions there's a bit of imposter syndrome and it's like well i've got a story to tell i like writing you know my grammar's all right but god i haven't been to university i haven't got a degree in literature so there's a lot of fear around that and i certainly felt that especially when it came to getting the confidence to try fiction uh, excuse me I've got a cup of tea on the go here and it might be a longer one and um so that question triggered a lot of introspection and i thought you know what yeah i'm not trained either um i've got no real formal background and maybe there's some value in me relaying that story in depth so that's what i'm going to do today but anybody else thinks they might be booking them there might be a lot worth picking through here and worth considering in your own story so that's what i'm going to do i've written it all down Got the, uh, the bullet points right here in front of me so here we go I'm gonna relay that story bear in mind I've been an illustrator since 2008 15 years now full time um, I've written on and off in that time formally since 2011 which I'll get to and why that started then um, I now believe that I've always had a writer's mind. That's something that came to me in my mid-30s that I started to see when I learned how to kind of introspect and understand my personality more and look at my backstory. So that's all in this thing, and I hope it's going to be of some value to you guys today. There's been a number of guests on this podcast over the years that are self-taught. I think of Tim Easley, for one. Um, ooh, who else? who else is self-taught? Can't remember. Can't remember off the top of my head. But there's a lot of people who don't have the formal training, and, and I know people who, you know, Uh, Oh, I know, Mark, I'm super fried, Uh, Mark is brilliant, a friend of mine, again shared in M1, we're all part of that crowd in Manchester, Mark's a great designer and I believe there are so many advantages to being self-taught and to not having um, flair and originality coached out of you. Always a debate for it, there's nothing wrong with formal training, I'm formally trained as an illustrator, I studied BA Honours in Illustration at Preston, UCLan University for three years. Two years on a graphic design course, a year in between on graphic media communications in Bradford. You know, I've got, I've got my certificate, it was the right path for me when it came to illustration. I had great teachers, but with writing, very much a, a passionate thing that I've learned along the way, and that's what I'm going to relate to you today. So that's the backstory, we did this Instagram Live, so I'm going to elaborate on that. So thank you for the question because it was a great train of thought to get on. So for some background, I mean backgrounds, critical for everyone, every one of us. So I encourage you all to do this. I was born in 1983. So youth for me was, well, let's say up until 18, right? So 1983 to 2000, we'll call it. We'll say two th- I've chosen 2000 because we got our first home computer in 1999. So almost all of those formative years for me were internet free. Um, and without considering youth without the internet as an exclusively bad thing, it's far more nuanced than that, obviously. I'm happy that it was so for me because it enabled me to make countless observations of my surrounding environment and culture and the people who populated it um, without the distraction. You know, I didn't have a thousand things running my face on devices. Uh, that in isolation for me is enough to be happy that I didn't have the internet growing up. And for me, that was the first big step to becoming a writer, collecting all that data through my eyes and my senses and lumping it all in the unconscious. Same for any writer, that's an inescapable, that's what our brain does. So of the people in that environment, I had a family of keen readers, a huge advantage who furnished my bedroom with a a great selection of fun children's literature and supported and encouraged me at all times to read, 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 read. Do you want to read a story? Can I read a story? What does this word mean? Constantly peppering in the head of my parents. Um, so, you know, I ask. they ask me questions. And I, this is something I do with my own children now. They, as I started to hit a certain age, they asked me why a character might have behaved a certain way. Why do you think this message is relevant? All these things to kind of give me a deeper layered um, consideration of storytelling. And that provoked deeper analysis of themes, of trusting me with books that were uh labeled as a little too old for me so standout is Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes um big example i i was allowed to read that i can't remember what age i was definitely too young for some of the stuff in there but it was fine because it was on the proviso that i would not run around at school spouting this filth and getting in trouble but that one very much tapped into this kind of um sense of humor that I had, which was a little rough around the edges because of the way my parents are, a lot of toilet humor in the house, a lot of crudity. Loved it, still love it to this day. Um, but that was, that was big for me so to see that in literature form in rhymes with cool illustration. Whoa, like, you know, big, big opening of something in my mind through that book. Um, and in later years, you know, around 11 and 12, my, my dad brought home Viz from car boot sales. Anyone who's familiar with Viz will know it's filth. But it's considered filth. It's creative filth. It's clever, smart, well observed, witty, dirty as hell. Yep, yeah, not for everyone. Offensive in today's world, but it's still got a place and it's great. It's, again, it's offensive for the right reasons. It's fun. It's lampooning. It's um, over the top. It's it's beautiful. You know, the political side of it is wonderful. And I had those annuals, you know, from car boot sales at eleven or twelve. I shouldn't have been getting them till at least sixteen, but you know. They definitely warped me in some way and it's subjective whether that's good or bad. Ask my wife on some days, she'll tell you it's bad. Other days she'll tell you it's brilliant. I love it because it it feeds all of my writing to this day. Uh, In school, I was a great speller. Very, very good. I was very naturally competitive and that proved a great driver. And I remember we had a league table in years five and six for spelling. That'll divide audiences, that'll, you know, some parents will go, whoa, 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 no, that's going to, like, wreck my kid's confidence if they're languishing in (laughs) mid-table. But, you know, maybe I'm speaking from a kid who was at the summit, I was second, I remember there was a kid called Chris who was fantastic at spelling, could never dislodge the bastard from the top, and it killed me, Um, but it drove me. And I got better, and I did it for fun in my spare time because I wanted to go back next week and be better. So I think, I think competition's good in schools, and I don't know about a league table. I think now knowing about sensitivity and that kids in their early formative steps are quite brittle, I think maybe there's a better way of doing that, you know, a private consultation rather than a public forum for results. I think maybe, it wouldn't, it, maybe it's not the best actually looking back. But at that time, in that circumstance, it worked well for me. And that competitive spirit really drove me on. Um, like I said, don't know now knowing about sensitivity, maybe it's not a good thing. Um, and while I never wrote prose outside of class, like, you know, I never wrote anything that wasn't homework or in the lesson drawing was my artistic go to because I was influenced by my artist mother. Um, but alongside that my dad and his two brothers, my uncles were deep into literature and visual culture. My uncle Ray wrote comedy for the likes of, uh, Bob Monkhouse and the two Ronnie's as well as BBC radio shows and, and much more, you know, he'd get short stories published and stuff. And, and he was very, uh, very sensitive, very quiet man still is. And, and very much a man of kind of leisurely writing, you know, he never committed to it as a career, but he had some great results and and just did it and seemingly effortlessly, and it was just totally his personality. And then my uncle Jeff, their younger brother, who was in a band and a huge fan of punk and between the three of them and my mum's artistry skills, I just fed off this constant sense of identity and, and personal belonging to these beautiful things that they were all into that gave them great purpose and joy. And you had to look for it back then as well. You know, this was a pre-internet bonus. Um, We couldn't just order things off eBay to be here tomorrow. You know, it's like you get that magazine when it's out in the shop or you might not see it again for years. Unless you go to like a you know collector's fair or something, or, or find you know write to somebody, or you, it's it's interesting looking back at this, isn't it? I think the scarcity was something. It ensured that we were part of bigger tribes because it forced you to go out and find these these artifacts that were quite precious. The same as TV, you know. Remember the days when you either recorded it off the telly on a VHS if you were of a certain age, a certain generation who had videos. Or, you saw it live, or you that was it, you missed it, too bad, you know, you might not get a rerun for years to come. That's what life was back then, and that scarcity, I think, and that kind of thing, it forced you to come together as tribes so that you could bring the thing you had together and share it with someone who didn't have access to it. And that made for such great storytelling, and all these people who belong to this beautiful tribe, and it's something I've been in love with ever since. So I feel fortunate for that, and it filtered down to me. So me growing up, you know, we're talking conscious awareness, kid, let's say five upwards, realistically seven upwards. It's that whole thing about, you know, show me the boy at seven, I'll show you the man. It's true, you know, formative age, seven upwards, I think you start to grow into your friendship circles and they're more important than your parents and everything else. And you you start getting those precious memories. So if we're talking seven, that's 1990 for me, so we're into the nineties now. So there's more, a few more comics, at the newsagents, a few more mags, uh, newspapers, uh, the stuff that my my dad and his uncle uh, and his brothers, my uncles wouldn't have had, you know. And they gave me identity because I'd seen what they had their thing so i hit my thing way harder than some other kids might have because i would just grown up in this environment i was a part of something that would generate conversation provoke adventure Um, my dad started taking me to leeds met comic fair the university in like the mid-90s with a friend of mine from school and we'd save up pocket money for weeks to buy like one shiny x-men card you know but you talk to all the old geezers there. It'd be there with the big bellies and their, their perms and you know stacks of these vintage X Men comics. It's like, whoa! How did you get? Whoa! How did you get into this? What's that one? How much, how much does that cost? You know where where else can I find this? And you're into something. You're into a, a, a proper geek circle, which I loved um so that was it it was legion night it was blur it was marvel comics it was professional wrestling my cultural horizons it's safe to say were pretty limited but that gave me a degree of obsession within them that was just magic to me and i got out of bed thinking about it and i went to bed thinking about it and i probably dreamed about it as well certainly gave me a lot of identity um you know going into school i was known to be into those things so it gave me currency and i think that this is all vital backstory. And you might be sat there thinking, well, hang on. I thought you were going to tell me about how you become a writer. This is crucial. It's crucial for me. It's crucial for you to look back and look at those roots and look at where you come from, what you were surrounded by, how you saw it and what you did with it. Because that's creativity. That's what happens. We're taking the internal and the stuff we've processed that's ours and we're smashing it against something new in the external world. And the result of that and what we produce is yeah, that's creativity, you know, Um, And it's vital so all that nurture in the 80s and 90s in West Yorkshire developed into this inherent curiosity and deep love of storytelling So to me one copy of match magazine or a newspaper containing like the best photograph of a Leeds United goal was absolutely priceless I would walk down in pissing rain on a Sunday morning when Leeds had been beat like 3-0 and Dutifully spend the last of my pocket money Which was like three quid a week on the newspaper for photographs of us getting beat my scrapbook and I would read it and read it over and over again. I would think about how we could have changed that result. What would have been different. I would look at the the way the light caught the yellow strip on the arm and it's like that level of detail was so important to me. And I would then decide, I would dissect it physically, cut it up, uh, reorganize it in these scrapbooks that i made um, and that was my earliest exposure to graphic design I now, re- I now realize. You know, I had no idea at the time of course. Um, because I couldn't Google 5,000 variations of it within minutes. That just wasn't a world available to us. You know, it isn't good or bad, but it was good for me, I think. So thanks to that mystique and that lack of availability uh, and lack of money to go out and buy more, my affection and lust for it only grew and I just thumbed those publications to death, the ones that I did have. You know, I remember one Christmas getting two copies of WWF magazine from my, my nan and grandad. That was amazing. I sat there, I carried them to the toilet. I sat there and just read them. Over and over, you know. So the only formal writing I did up until the age of twenty-eight was enforced essays in college and university, and rubbish, rubbish poetry. That I'd do these rubbish poems when I had a romantic heartbreak. You know, I got dumped or I'd dumped somebody and regretted it immediately, and <laughs> post these shitty poems on a A5 notepad through the door. It's like, <laughs> oh. Um, and these grim hangover parables that I started to write to make friends laugh, who were also experiencing these grotty hangovers for the first time. And But verbally, it was a different story. I was Verbally, I was writing all of the time, and I would never have considered it writing, but it very much is. And it was Sir John Hegarty who said to me on episode 50 of this podcast that great writing is that it's those little witticisms and little statements and, and little you know stings that we say to each other and and that's you know with local dialects and observations and personal details that's great writing and that's what he said to me and that's what i used to do with these hangovers and um you know at college i'd make these posters and turn people into characters for a night out in halifax and bradford like i was promoting a wrestling event and it's it's pathetic looking back but i loved it and it gave me such joy and purpose um and i saw a wondrous possibility in everything I've always felt that magic in the world and it's what, you know, drew me to the arts. But because I'd started on this path to a career as a visual communicator, I always felt chained to imagery. So at times, admittedly, illustration felt like it couldn't give life to these ideas that I had and I didn't know what to do with them. So I would store them and and bank them and and, and it would be some time before I started to write. It never occurred to me that the way that I saw the world meant I I had always had a writer's mind. I struggle to remember the date of a family celebration that my wife gave me two minutes ago, you know, or, or a shopping list for Tesco Metro, but I can recite to you word for word some joke or reader's letter from 1996 copy of his because it fit my love of narrative and, and the importance of humour for me. Again, this is all crucial to writing and learning, that you, can, you know, that you, whether you are one or not and, or, and how you should do it. Um, but I needed someone to push me towards it. I needed someone who was a writer or was in that world to go you know you've got that sort of brain have you tried it but i didn't so you know it was i had to sort of live more life to understand who i was and eventually the catalyst was feeling the utter frustration and anger of an extended freelance illustration client spell in 2011 to start hammering the keyboard you know and that's what i did on tumblr i don't even know if tumblr's still a thing i think it is i think i still get their spam (laughs) Um, but in a blog that i set up on tumblr I routinely changed the name of it, you know, I went from like, God, it was one of them was, oh, I can't even remember, there was one that was about, um, like, as if I'd been diagnosed with creativity, you know what I mean? Treating it as a sort of ailment because it was a constant in my life and it was stressful. Um, Anyway, I had all these silly names for it, but uh, this attracted a small but passionate and very supportive group of creative industry people who related to my chronicling of the gritty reality of how it feels to make a living from creativity. That's what I was doing. So this, this freelance quietness, this stress, this financial stress, and this, um, bitterness about the fact that I had two good years and suddenly I was in the trenches with no work again and money running out was, was very stressful for me and, and challenged my identity. So I wanted to write about that and write about this, um, you know, what it feels like to go through that. So of course, loads of others were going through it cause it's pretty normal when you freelance. And they were coming back going, I love this. It's it's raw. It's honest. You know, it's cool. It's like, you're a bit angry at times. And I was, I was very venomous in those early posts. And I, I eventually managed to kind of refine that and use that to make good wit rather than just, you know, and in particular, I remember Kate Madigan, who was an illustrator coming to me and telling me and a message that she was from an editorial background and that I had a good writing style. And it flowed and it was punchy and it was funny and I and and that meant the world because I had nothing. I didn't know how to know whether I was a good writer or not. I was truly just doing it through pure raw emotion, which is where a lot of good creativity comes from. And yes, it needed refining, it needed a good editor that would eventually get through David Woods Hale, who's been my editor ever since. But Kate saying that to me was a, a game changer for me. It just it switched there and then. So I did it harder. I did it more. I did it. Um, with a greater eye to detail and, and making the thing better and it eventually attracted the interest of David Woods Hale who I just mentioned he was working. I actually used to w- provide work for David when he was the editor of HR magazine I think that's right. Or was it management today one of the other and um, So he was still working with Laura Hawkins who is now my wife Laura Talon a little publisher called Lid after he left hair market and he said Saw, you know, we started dating at that point, me and Laura, and she'd mentioned it in conversation that I was doing a lot of writing. She said, "Oh, what about?" And she told him, "And Lid were a little boutique business publisher in London, did a lot of um, entrepreneur books." They were like, mm, "Okay, it's got one foot in business. Sounds semi-interesting. Sounds fun. Like a bit more colourful than what we publish." But, so look at it. So I couldn't believe it. Oh my god, somebody wants to look at this stuff. So I sent it over. Um, and what was awesome was by this time, I was now 30 years old and I'm a big believer that it takes somewhere in that region to truly understand yourself. You have to live that much life to, to have enough material to look at and truly introspect, honestly, and know yourself. Like, you know, I was a kid up until that age, I didn't really understand myself, but by my late 20s, I started to make better decisions and you know, I had my business running by that point. I was an illustrator, I, I was living in Manchester where I wanted to be, I had some cool friends and so I was exposed to a lot more and knew myself better. So in that manuscript um, w- was competency and I had begun to trust and better understand myself to the point that I was able to write a decent book with humor and a little soul, you know, so what that did was meant that this thing was alive and it sang and it was raw and it needed edited by David. There was a bit of grammar work needed on it, but that backstory tells you everything. I'd been constantly exposed to good writing and, and storytelling through my dad and his uncles and through my mum, and and you know my mum's a very rich character, she's a visual artist, but she's into the esoteric, she does readings, she's a wonderfully vibrant, fun character, so again, you know, she was in there playing computer games with us as kids, she was also a sucker for stories, so it was just there in every step of my life, you know, like my granddad's war stories as well, it told them with colour and, and, you know, great humour, and, and I just think, you know, the stories about my dad and his uncle's dad. There's one about him dragging a bus driver out of his compartment on the bus for being cheeky to him and having a fight with him on the pavement. You know, it, 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 these were like generational characters, proper characters, raw as F, you know? Um, so all of that was in my life. And here it was in Champagne and Wax Crayons. And I actually, in, amongst all of that, I had been routinely, and being a prolific reader, I had... Okay, not physically written, but I had long since absorbed the mechanics of storytelling and what made a story work, the arc of it, the tension, the palpability, the bits where it needs to just move you forward. All of that stuff was coming out of me very naturally, even though I didn't know how to articulate that or even know that I knew it. And I actually scrapped the first Champagne and Wax Crayons manuscript after three years. Three years, because I knew that it was trying too hard. You know, it was—it it was... I was trying to be funny. I was trying to be profound. I was putting big statements in there. And it was something that wasn't me in the end. The, 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 the basis of what I was trying to tell was there. But what there was an important moment where I'd paused on it because it was feeling clunky and I didn't know where to turn. And then, that Christmas, I read George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London, which just flowed with such ease, with such powerful, simple prose that moved the reader along while gripping them. And I got it. I got it immediately. I knew that this had to be fun and simple, and I just had to let the thing rip. So I sat down and I rewrote the entire sixty thousand word manuscript in six weeks. I remember it well. It was over at Christmas, um probably Christmas two thousand and eleven. No, hang on, Christmas. No, that I started writing in two thousand eleven. So probably about Christmas two thousand fourteen. I think the book came out in two thousand fifteen, maybe thirteen. Anyway, tooth or whatever, whatever, a few years of, of scrapped work led to this moment. Um, and the same thing happened with my new book, The Creative Condition, my second nonfiction book that's, you know, it's there right now. You probably see me bang, banging the drum about it and the Kickstarter, but being a writer requires drive. And patience and persistence and the ability to recognize and address required changes on mass you know you have to be ruthless and that takes a lot of time and hard work and it is it does wear you down at times but you have to do it If you can't do that you probably won't be a good writer because you, you have to get there to make the thing shine but thankfully motivation hasn't been an issue for me not since I discovered something that I loved you know art college uh, I, I, realized then that I had to be passionate about what it was that I was studying or learning or working on to do it, to do it well and put the required effort in, um, but then, you know, once I, I found that I could write and I loved doing this thing and someone was interested in it, I just immersed myself in great writing. I read a lot, I wrote a lot, read a lot, wrote a lot, all of the time. When I'm writing books, I observe. Behavior in my environment like I always have. I, I get off my phone long enough to glean the stuff that will make my work unique and authentic. Um, and I go varied. I read books I wouldn't have chosen to read. I pick something random. I read non-fiction, I read fiction, I read short stories, I read novels, I read comics. And, you know, in between my two non-fiction books, I've written five works of fiction. Which took some courage building to try, you know? Um, but ultimately for the same reasons outlined above storytelling came naturally to me it's how i make sense of the world everyone is a character a joke or anecdote for every life circumstance and i did two affordable six-week courses that's the only formal training i've had so a short story writing course run by karen MacLeod, who's a great writer in the bookseller crow in crystal palace in london and a short horror fiction course during lockdown and early parenthood over zoom, which was run by the wonderful Andy Murray for Manchester publisher Comma Press, who does so many good books, uh, and that's the extent of my training. So I have a, a close relationship with David Woods, Hale, who I mentioned, my editor and good friend, and here we are on the brink of the publication of my seventh book, creative condition, and that's not a self-indulgent pat on the back for me. You know, my fiction work sales are at a low, you know, that's tested my confidence at times. I haven't worked that out of the market yet. I'm studying marketing courses as we speak, but what I'm finding is I very much believe in the books. Um, I wouldn't have put them out otherwise, but I just don't have the capacity as a twin parent of a three-year-old and non-fiction writing, a podcast, and an illustration career to look after. I just am one person, you know, I don't have that, and I, I think I'm over-ambitious at times, and it does cost me, it causes me to burn out. So I'm going back to the drawing board to try and get a literary agent um, because I really believe in that stuff too, and I want to do it, but I've published those independently. Still a novice in that world, but um, I believe in it and it's the way I'm wired and the feedback from many, many people assures shows me that I'm good enough to do this well, despite no training, you know, and I'm sure that's true of a lot of you who might be listening to this. So beware of that box ticking culture that makes you doubt your place in an artistic field, just because you don't have this this, certificate, you know, I mentioned guys earlier, Dirty Freud is another one who does the music for this show, his story is in my first book, Champagne and Wax Crayons, about the way that he stumbled into um, music, very much similar to mine, exposed to a lot of great music in his early years, his mum used to rode it for Iron Maiden, but he was dissuaded by one silly teacher's um, off the cuff damaging comment about how Gary Newman isn't real music when he was loving Gary Newman and it knocked his confidence, so he chose creative writing. For him, it was the right path. He went around the houses, he did playwright poetry, studied creative writing at the university, brought a book out before he eventually started to play around with music through the technology we were afforded of a certain time. So like logic on Apple, he started to learn it. We were He was reviewing gigs in Manchester and the people who put on those gigs let him come and play with the DJ equipment in their basements in the week so he trained himself and he's played Glastonbury since and he's toured Canada and toured New York and he's putting records out all the time and he's running a record label and it's wonderful to see and it's the same for any of you guys don't worry about the box ticking culture and the certification and data obsession that we're in today's world can be damaging, people can put up boundaries but it doesn't mean you're not going to be good at what you do so remember that I just think you, like any art form, you have to spend time with yourself. You have to be at peace with every aspect of what's inside, good, bad, and weird. Like looking to Jungian psychology, Carl Jung, it's, it's, it's big. It's important learn about the shadow, you know, admit to all those little quirks and um, oddities inside, because once you own those and start to reconsider them as something that could be good, and also reconsider the things that you think are your strengths as weaknesses, it's a valuable exercise, you know in different circumstances and you start to get a really good understanding of yourself. I had a conversation on an episode with Sarah Coggin, who is a language teacher and illustrator on an episode of this podcast, not too long back. And Sarah describes her way of assessing her personality and her growth as the mixing desk of life. I think it was in that every dial is a trait and you can turn it from one to 10 could be shyness. It could be clumsiness it could be observation skills i mean it could be anything it could be any personality or trait you can add to it all the time and she tries to combine them and she turns some up turns some down sees how that comes out where does that fit in that life circumstance it's a really great way of looking at your personality and i did the same thing and you'll find that in this book the creative condition there's it's in a chapter and i use the analogy of a top trump card so for anyone who's familiar with that game top trumps is a stat based game where you draw a card and it can be you know there's like wwe top trumps there's nfl top trumps there's royal family top trumps and you draw cards and and whoever you know you face off against somebody and you look at your corresponding cards and you choose your best asset so let's say it's dexterity nine you call that out and they go dexterity uh seven you win you claim their card and so on and that's how it works highest number wins and what I did was, I like to draw up top trumps of my own personality. So I would go, right, clumsiness, um, clumsiness is high, you know, nine, you would consider that a bad thing, right? It pisses me off. It's a bad thing around the house, but it's the foundation of my drawing skill. That haphazardness, that chaos that causes that is the foundation of my drawing skill, which has given me an illustration career and also characterizes the way I speak on this podcast, the way that I write my fiction and nonfiction. That's how I live my life. So when you look at it like that, that nine, maybe that is a good thing. You know what I mean? So same thing goes, when you look at drive and passion for me, probably eight or nine, maybe even a 10 at times, if I got the right thing on the go, obsessive, the bad side of that, what would turn it into a, a bad stat is when I need to be patient. I need to take my time. I need to learn and I need to focus and not do 50 things at once then passion becomes an Achilles heel. So that's how you have to look at yourself and look at your personality. And I think when you do that, it starts to inform whether you might be a good writer, whether you might be better suited to something that that better uses those strengths and weaknesses to good effect. So I know somebody who recently had to quit being a doctor. She's an amazing doctor, but her empathy was through the roof and she was taking everybody's problems home with her and it was crushing her. People were dying on her watch. That's what happens in hospitals. People were sick. She was coming home in bits, the poor last, so she had to step away. She had to find a different aspect of the medical profession to, um, to deal with that, you know, so again, maybe better suited somewhere else, even though she's amazing at that and her personality is at the bedrock of all of creativity. So think of it like that, you know, um, and we're all creative. That's the thing it's nuanced, right? So it, like I just said, it will work different ways for different people, better suited to this and that, but we are all creative. Let's just accept and embrace and move on with that because it's an active species trait. Can't be human and not be creative, right? We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. We, we invented clothes and shelter and then cures to diseases. So. Let's just get past that, we're creative, let's not just intertwine it with the arts because somebody can draw, it doesn't mean they're creative and you're not. I do lots of drawings that aren't creative, they're just process, you know? Um, and these days, I, 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 my challenge is not to see if I can write, but to make the right decisions in directing it. Knowledge, passions, emotions, the, the time available to me, my financial state, my long-term plans for my creativity, they all factor into that decision-making process. And there will always be mistakes, I'll take a few missteps, always, you have to, to find out. But just now, while there will always be better writers than me, I truly believe that nobody else could have written any of my books the way that I have. And that feels great. So, I will put that one to you, I think. The Creative Condition, coming soon, is an organic growth project. It wasn't meant to be a book, but it's evolved, and it's 10 years of conversations, and studying, and writing about the nature and behaviour of human creativity. Brought together in two years' worth of physical writing and editing, most writing far exceeds the time span of the physical writing you know it's it's like a bottle of wine it has to that thing has to mature and have this backstory in its history to be what it is in that lovely- you know well presented bottle that you pick up off the off the wine cellar's shelf and that's the same thing with writing you know it's you, a lot of the references in the stuff that I write can you know some of it comes from thirty years ago and longer. Some of it's from yesterday on a dog walk, that's the nature of it. It's a medley of all them things. And I think that's really lovely, um, you know, the way our lives play out and how our brains operate and show that it must be this way. There might be interviews with scientists and psychologists in this book, which there are, or, you know, there's loads, there's firefighters, there's, um, ex convicts, but there's also viz and my teenage idiot is well in there as well. You know, And I'm fine with that. So. There you go, I hope that's of some use. I hope I've spewed something of value there that helps you understand how I realised that I could write, but also how you can realise whether writing's for you. Um, do please consider backing the Kickstarter. It's into the home straight now, I'm not too far off. It's feeling good, it's feeling like it might happen, but I do need you to help me and get behind it, so please do follow the links through my Instagram, at Um In the bio links you'll find the link to the Kickstarter. Same on my Twitter and everything else. And a big thank you to the founding sponsors of the show, Illustration X. You can check out their global range of illustration and animation portfolios now. IllustrationX.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Hope you enjoyed. Have a wonderful week, and I'll check in with you soon.